Welcome, welcome. Glad you're here. Yes, things look a little different tonight. I'll tell you why in just a minute. Uh, let's see. Honey, anything we need to announce? There is no Wi-Fi in case you're wondering. Sorry, it was on fire in the alley from the storms. I guess there were storms here Friday. We were in Kansas City, so we, didn't, we weren't here for the storms. Uh, so anyway, sorry about that. Uh, what a great day. If you didn't get to worship today, watch it on YouTube. Fabulous. Uh, let's see. Oh, and so one of the things Cody announced was uh, Back to the Future. We're going back to a 5 o'clock service here at Fort Worth. So if you miss the 5 o'clock service, uh, it's coming back. Now some of you are thinking, uh-oh. What does that mean? So as of right now, now we have to get, wow, it got really quiet. Now, until we get staff and volunteers, nothing happens. Uh, but then when we put the 5 o'clock service back in place, uh, we'll be finished. Okay, we won't. We're going to stay at 5 o'clock. As a hard choice because I want to facilitate people going to worship and then coming to adult ed, or if you wanted to serve at 5, which I very much appreciate, and then come to class, uh, it's just better for driving and for the end of the weekend to finish up at 6 o'clock. Uh, so we're going to continue to meet from 5 to 6. And if you want to go to the 5 o'clock service, that's great. We're on YouTube. You can watch us. It's just about the same. People say I'm plastic. It's all okay. But that's what we're going to do as of right now. 5 o'clock, we'll, this class will remain at 5 o'clock even if we start the 5 o'clock service. You heard it here first. Uh, let's see, something else. No, I think that was a big one. Okay, you're in for a treat. Eve, come up here, my friend. This is Dr. Efren Salcedo. He uh, is one of our rising stars as a pastor. He's an associate pastor here at the Fort Worth campus. He got his PhD in Old Testament. <sighs> he graduated something like magna cum laude. I graduated laude, how come? <laughs> You're going to love what he has to say. He's going to teach you some psalms tonight, um, and I'm not going to take any more of your time. Come on, my brother. All right. Thank you. Love having you here. It's good to be here tonight. We're going to jump in quickly, but let's have a word of prayer first. Amen? Father, we just come before you. We thank you, Lord, for just this wonderful opportunity to be able to study your word and through that draw closer to you. And we thank you for the love that you have for us and for the love that you stir, stir in our hearts to have toward you. And we pray that it may be a fruitful and edifying time, a time of good fellowship, Lord. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity. In Christ's name, amen. So, uh, erase the PhD Old Testament. You know, everybody, once you get that, everybody thinks you could uh, talk on all the mysteries of the Old Testament and far from that. So, and it's 39 books, and there's so much in those 39 books. And uh, my, my focus was on just a little sliver of one of the minor prophets and uh, just dug deep there. Uh, but I am very happy to be here uh, in Old Testament survey with y'all today. And I think this is the Old Testament crowd of the church. 
And I'm glad there's an Old Testament crowd of the church. It's important. It is so important. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at Psalms. And so we're going to have, I think, a quick break uh, from doing Second uh, Samuel, First and Second Samuel, and I think we'll get back to it next week, Lord willing, if there's not another storm. In fact, just a quick story. I was with Andrew tonight when I realized we got to get notes. And everything in our systems here at, at the church is through fiber optics. As Bill was explaining, there was a fire and all that. Not all of it was burned, but they had to shut it down, and now uh, they're working through that. Uh, trying to get that done, and I realized that all that is also for our copiers and printers, and, and we were like, okay, how are we going to do this? But suddenly, I had Lori say, hey, we already have it printed, and I was, God, so good, right? He always finds a way. This is grace when you're like, Lord, I can't find a way. He's like, I'll do it for you. So we're so thankful. I'm thankful to be here. We're looking at the all of 150 Psalms, uh, we're not going to be able to get into it too deep tonight because uh, it's just quite a bit, but we're going to talk about it. And just to begin, to really begin to kind of have a taste for what we're going to be seeing tonight, if you have a Bible, if that's both physical or electronic, I want you to go to Psalm chapter 1, and we're going to do a Bible study, what we call Bible study method of observing and interpreting and seeing what the application is. And so, in other words, what does Psalm 1 say to us? Uh, what does it mean? And then also, what should I, what should I do with it uh, once I read through it? So I'd I would ask you to take some time and just read those six verses and begin to understand what is it that it what, what is it that the psalmist is trying to say there in chapter 1? You have, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits uh, in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the Torah, in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and light. At night, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So there's a lot of illusion here as well that we begin to see that even points back to Genesis. But you begin to see at least in verses 1 and 2 that you find these two sources of wisdom. And so you find the, the source of either walking in the right counsel, in the right path, or in the counsel or in the way of the wicked. So you find these two sources in verses 3 and 4, 4 says the wicked are not so, but are like the shaft that the wind drives away. So you see here this aspect of, in verses 3 and 4, of two paths. There's this path that is very fruitful and a path that is unfruitful. And then verses 5 and 6, you see these two destinies, correct? 5 and 6 say, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So you have either you will be saved or you will perish. So there's this fork in the road. Uh, it, it's similar to Deuteronomy when uh, Moses was getting the people ready, and he kind of put that fork on the road, and it's like, here's life and death. What are you going to choose today? And he begins to exhort them, but also begins to warn them of the things that will come if they begin to uh, be disobedient. And so... The theme, really the theme of Psalms is that God will be victorious. And I think that is great because that's what the people of God uh, were coming before God's presence, knowing that as they humble themselves before him and acknowledged him, that God would fight their fights. God will be victorious. And we will see what's great about Psalms is that you see both the good and the bad, the times of doubt the times of fear, uh, the times of complaining before the Lord, not understanding, as well as the times of praises before God. And you kind of get a real, in the, one, in the 150 Psalms, you get a quick glimpse of life, a journey, a pilgrimage uh, to God and spending time with the Lord. And we see it through the life of Israel. Uh, and so in all this, and we'll get back, I want you to Put your finger there on Psalm 1. We'll talk about more of Psalm 1 here in a little bit. But what we see here is 
that God will be victorious. And what does that mean uh, for the people of God during this time? So some of the basics, and we'll get to that, is first of all, um, it represents the faith of individuals in the Lord. Most vividly, especially for the life of Israel, the Psalms are inspired responses of human hearts, of human hearts to God's revelation of himself in law, history, and prophecy. You see, saints of all ages have taken this collection of prayers and praises in their public worship and private meditations. And so we also see that in this book, it reveals Israel, the Israelites as an intensely religious people. They have a strong sense of right and wrong. They are worshipers of God. They oppose the wicked and unbelief. Their daily activities, their national celebrations, their military activities were all carried out with this religious commitment. The fact that the songs reflect the commitment, this commitment that they have, it makes them all more serviceable for the edification of the household of God. And I think that is so important. How many people we've seen, preachers and just testimonies, that in people's lives as, as they faced um, difficulties, a lot of times they were drawn to the Psalms. And it would be a Psalm 23 that would encourage them, knowing that the Lord is the good shepherd and is, this, and is there with them through thick and thin. Uh, so there's so much edification for the entire household of God. Uh, so it, it, it functions as a pilgrimage, um, expressing and defining faith for the people of God. So who... Who's written some of these beautiful poetic psalms that we have here today? Some of these hymns that we sing at times. Well, we have Moses. Uh, Moses, uh, normally Psalms 90 is attributed to Moses. We also have David, which is about 73 of the psalms of the, of the 150 that we have there. Uh, we have also Asaph, Heman. Uh, we also have Ethan. And these guys, you find it, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15 or uh, 1 Chronicles 6, it talks of these men, Heman and Ethan. And these guys were Levites. Uh, these guys were from the tribe or Ethrites, if we can put it in those words. And they were mostly Levites before the king to do songs, to sing before the Lord. Um, and so it is interesting to see sometimes even the setup that you have find with David as you read through Chronicles how he begins to even uh, focus on the Levites and begins to uh, establish them and define them even better of what they're going to do. And there's a group of them that sing, there's a group of them that play instruments, so on and so forth uh, before the Lord. Um, so we have who, and so we have some of these men here um, who've been attributed to writing most of the Psalms that we have. Uh, when is the next one? Uh, so when is at least from 1446 B.C. to 535 B.C. So this is spans of period of from Moses all the way to the captivity, uh, even post-exilic. Uh, so we have a great vast of territory, a great vast of years uh, that we see that all these men have contributed uh, to what we have today. So it's a, it's a neat thing to have before us to understand how these 150 psalms have come to us and that they're not just from one man or one group or one generation, but they've been from many generations uh, through uh, a lot of experience and events in the life of Israel and have come down to us. So in your notes, like in page three, you'll see some of the places. There's various places that uh, some of these psalms have come from. And you can look at that and read that. There in your time, and you'll see where some of these psalms were created. Some, uh, for example, when David was running and hiding in caves, running away from Saul. Uh, and through those experiences, we have some of these events as well. Now, as we've been talking about why, why do we have this? Well, predominantly, it, the emphasis is that pretty much uh, throughout the entire book, the psalmist assumed or expressed the belief that the Lord who sovereignly rules the universe will establish his just rule on the earth, uh, not just on the earth, but through his people. And this is what we see in the book of Psalms, that God will use his people. And 
it's very much in the very beginning. So as you read, um, it's somewhere in chapter 20, 25, in regards to the purpose of why God chose Abraham. And God's pretty much telling him, uh, it's through your descendants, it's your seed. It's a, it's a godly seed that I want to see come out of you, Abraham, pretty much. And you'll see that, in, I think, in chapter 25, um, in, or a little earlier in, in Genesis. So there's this idea that God will make his, his name known among the nations through his people. And so Ross, Alan Ross, one of our um, Old Testament scholars, expressed it this way, as I just read it to you, what's up, up on the screen. Uh, because the Psalms, also he said, because the Psalms record such a vast range of religious ideas and impressions, it is difficult to discover a specific theology for the collection. Almost all the theological ideas you'll find in one way or the other in the Old Testament, and it'll sur it will surface all here in the book of Psalms, uh, one way or the other. So it's not easy to find a single thread through the whole thing. And when faced with opposition, uh, when the people of God were faced with opposi opposition from wicked or physical difficulties, they prayed for the Lord in their lives, confident that the judge of all the earth would bring vindication when righteousness triumphant, they praise God for that victory, his righteousness among the people. And so we see this in the work of Psalms. And so it is also a psalm that it's not just for the people of God during the time of the Israelites, but for our hearts too. So they express love and adoration to God. They show, they show sorrow over sin and its consequences. They show dependence on God in desperate circumstances, the battle between fear and trust, walking with God even through darkness, thankfulness for God's care, devotion to God's word, confidence in the triumph of God's purpose, and an act of worship. All of this narrows down to this act of worship, or what the, what the Apostle Paul said, we are living sacrifices before the Lord, right? And so we walk in such a way that we can constantly bring glory to God. And this is where we can see at the end how all this culminates in our lives as we read to be able to go before the Lord in an act of worship uh, and acknowledge Him. So we have five books. So the Psalms breaks up in five books. We'll look here at book one and book two. We have... Uh, book one and book two that speaks about the early monarchy. So, so book one is Psalm 1 all the way to Psalm 41. Book two starts at Psalm 42 and finishes in Psalm 72. And so both of these books are telling the story of the early monarchy. So there's this kingship theme here in these two books. David uh, speaks words of lament. Uh, you find those words of lament in like, for example, Psalm 3 all the way to Psalm 41. And then you find him praise based on Yahweh's unending goodness and righteousness. And so despite the treachery towards divine king in various ways, either an enemy coming against him or even within his own household, uh, enemies that uh, are risen within his, within his own household against him, God gives the king triumph over the enemies. And so you see this aspect in these psalms, in book one and two, both books celebrate God's, uh, David's kingship as under the ultimate kingship of Yahweh. And so what I want to do real quickly, uh, hopefully you have your Bible here. I've put, for example, some of these verses up. But we have Psalms 1 and 2. We just read Psalms 1, for example. And Psalms 1, if you want to jot it down, Psalms 1 is an individual psalm, Right? It is asking for that reader, we as readers approaching, approaching the book of Psalms that, hey, early on you have to make a decision. You have a path to take. And we read some of that. And so there, it's really profound, not only for us, but in regards to the end times, what we call ecclesiology, uh, there's a message there. So Psalms 1 and 2 sometimes is known as the doorway to the Psalter, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit, uh, and Psalms 1 is an individual psalm, and so real quickly, just to kind of give you an idea how some of, 
what God has given us here. So a lot of times people will say Psalm 1 and 2 go together as an introduction. And Psalm 149 and 150 kind of reflect what we see in 1 and 2. So they're kind of bookends to the book of Psalms. And so here in 1, as we talked about, it's a personal challenge. But also um, in Psalm 2, we also see that it's not just a personal challenge, but it's a national psalm as well. And so going back here real quickly to Psalms 1, as you look at Psalms 1, some of the things that we've read, we see that it calls upon the individual to choose between two lifestyles, either the righteous or the way of the wicked. It stresses that the, that the person who's blessed or the blessed person is he or she who meditates on Torah or on God's law day and night. Um, as we see in those verses, there's this fork in the road that we've talked about of life or death, the righteous way or the wicked way. We look here at verse 3 that I have up, up, up on the screen. It says, he is like a, like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf, it does not wither. So we have this aspect as well, this illusion of the tree of life for those who choose what is the right path. It's like the tree of life in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in, in verse 10. Or the, we also see in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 47, the first 12 verses, it talks about this eschatological, these trees that have been planted by the river of life that flows from the temple. And its leaves ser serves as bombs to heal the nations. And so you see that there is, as you're starting here, there is a reflection back even to Genesis. Some of them say, some scholars say that the first, so the book of Psalms is divided in five major books. We're looking at the first two right now. But they say sometimes those five major books reflect the first five books of the Bible. And so a lot of what you see, we see there as well. Uh, and so it is a way, it's all intertwined. It is a way to go before the Lord and to worship the Lord, but allow the Lord also to look in our lives uh, and see what is there. So it is, it's a great, it's a great place. And so when you go from Psalm 1 to Psalm chapter 2, it's a, like I said earlier, it's a national psalm. And it could be part of the introduction because it concerns, concerns the same decision that you find in Psalm 1. But it's for the nations. It's not just for the individual. It speaks about the relationship between Yahweh and the nations. So all nations, like it says there in verse 2 that I put up there, starting uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 7 to 9, all nations will one day bow before God Messiah. It says, I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And then it goes on talking about how he will rule with, rule with an iron rod. And so there are some, in these few verses, there's some interesting things that bring out some illusions that we find. First of all, we see the aspect of genealogy and the aspect of geography. A Davidic king, Right? A Davidic king will rule over the entire earth, which is geography. Um, the text looks back to David, but not only looks back to David, it looks forward to this future David, if we can put it in those words, or this future univer universal reign of one of his descendants that we know it's Christ. So there are some neat things here that I want to highlight before you that we don't pick up sometimes in the English language, but we definitely do when you look at it in, the, in its original language, in the Hebrew, in Aramaic as well. And so here, real quickly, looking at chapter 2, we see some of the words that kind of pop out. Like, for example, you have in verse 2, Messiah, or as your Bible translated, anointed. So we have this reference to Davidic descendant using some of these terms. In verse 6, you have king, uh, which is melech in, in the Hebrew. And then you, in verse 7, you have the, the word son, which is ben. Uh, and it culminates with the exhortation of the leaders of all nations to come and who? And kiss the son. And so you see this in verse 12. What is interesting is that I just shared with you that in verse 7, the word son is bed in Hebrew, but when you look at verse 12, it's bar. 
So it's not Hebrew anymore, it's Aramaic. And so you have to ask yourself, why did the writer, why did the psalmist do this? Why did he go into Hebrew and then suddenly at the very end change to, to Aramaic? And you have to learn, also understand that in history and in the, in the ancient Near East, um, Aramaic was the lingua franca, it was a common language. Uh, it was the way that other nations would come together to do business. And so just like it is today, that mostly we can go almost all over the world and speak English and people will somehow understand our language because it is also a language that is expanded and used for in the business world uh, to be able to connect with other people. It was the same back in the day, and especially later, later beyond the Old Testament in the 6th and 7th century AD, it became, it, it actually took over uh, the Hebrew language. And so that's why sometimes when you see Jesus speak in some of his language, uh, apart from the Greek that we read, you see that it, it really emphasizes the Aramaic. So why that? Well, if it is supposed to be the common language, the writer is letting them know this son is not just going to be particularly to one ethnic group, but it's for everyone. He will be a king over all, and he will rule everyone. And so this simple change in language allows one to understand what they're trying to say what they're trying to emphasize, and I think it's pretty neat. And I just wanted to really just kind of highlight, highlight it before you all, just to let you understand what it means there in verse 12 when he says, Kiss the son, um, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So it's a pretty neat thing. Here, early on in the Psalms, just in chapter 2, we see this Davidic messianic language already moving forward uh, for people to understand what's coming, especially for God's people. And so we go into book three, the exile. This is kind of why and how long uh, you see the writers talking about, Lord, are you there? You seem silent. I feel like the enemies are beating me up every day. You're nowhere around. And there's this time of exile from Psalms 73 all the way to Psalms 89. And the book begins with a wondering at the prosperity of the wicked. Why do the wicked prosper? Uh, it's kind of similar to Habakkuk. Habakkuk did ask that question to God. It's okay. To, in other words, it's okay to complain. Right? Sometimes we feel like, can we go before God and complain, and will he strike us down because we complained? Well, Habakkuk complained, but he didn't stay there. One of the things about Habakkuk is that he understood when God said, I'm send, sending a worse nation, a nation, a pagan nation, to be my belt to bring punishment over you. And Habakkuk at the end says, I will wait on you, and I will be faithful to you. Uh, and it's something that we see reflected a lot here in the Psalms as well. So there's this idea of why is the wicked prospering? Psalms 88, for example, is uh, perhaps one of the darkest Psalms. It begins with an acknowledgement that the Lord is the God of my salvation, but then proceeds to offer of the telling of pain and sorrow. Now, theologically, and it's for all of us, uh, for God's people during this time, the call is to have faith despite the current bleak circumstances. And I want to pause there. How many times, and I want to say this for myself, you know, as a child, I would always tell God, I'll, I'll, I'll follow you and I will, I'll be your best man if you do this for me in these circumstances, right? Well, what about if he doesn't? Can we still maintain faith with God? And I think God's people, as we read through uh, his, the Psalms and his word, have time and time again reinforced that. I will have faith in you. Habakkuk is one of those. Jeremiah is one of those. Uh, Jeremiah's ministry, for all those years he served the Lord, he didn't see one man, one woman turn to God. Yet he was faithful to God. And it is a great challenge for us. I think... Uh, we tend to sometimes back out pretty quickly and throw in the towel pretty fast. 
when the Lord is calling us to persevere and have faith. And so we see this theologically, this call to faith despite current bleak circumstances here in book three. Uh, significantly, this collection of Psalms concludes with a poem there in chapter 89 of Psalms that emotionally contracts the stark reality of the present situation of exile and judgment and the absence of the Davidic monarchy. By this time, it wasn't happening. So for people to say, well, you promised us a David. Where, where is he? Where is he? With the promise of an enduring throne, the enduring throne of David. So even in the midst of this, it is this complaint, this lament, if we could put it that way, in Psalm 89 of like, what is happening? And where is David's throne? But this sense of faith saying, but I will see it come in the future. It is a neat psalm. It is a neat psalm. Uh, it's this, it, it is just, it allows us, uh, this shows this contrast, this reality of the present situation of what they're facing, but what they're looking for, this ideal ruler that we see in Psalms 86.3. We can read that real quickly. Just give me a few minutes, just a couple seconds to jump over there, but jump to 89.3 says, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. So there's this promise that Dave, there's a David coming. Uh, we see that also in verse 4. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So they are taking this in their hearts. They're not saying, well, you, didn't, you failed us this generation, so I'm not even going to think about you or share about you to my children. Forget it. You've, you've abandoned us, so we're abandoning you. That's not the case here. Uh, they are faithful to the Lord. And so we see this in book three, and we come to book four. Book four is the reminder that God is Israel's savior. And the Psalms that cover book four are from Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. Book four begins with the Psalm of who? If you look at Psalm 90, it's Moses who writes this psalm. And it points back to the wilderness experience. Now, there's something neat about this. If you look at Psalm 90, Moses is writing. He's pointing back to the wilderness experience of Israel as the time when Israel was consumed by God's wrath and judgment for their sin. Why? Why do you think this is happening? Well, what it's suggesting is that just as the previous exile, right? They never went into the promised land and they had to go around this mountain for 40 years and it wasn't pretty for them. Um, but just as that previous exile ended, so will this one. So it is a great way to begin that psalm and letting, know, letting God's people know that God is Israel's savior. He's not letting them forget. He said, yep, you've gone through a hard time. Here's Moses' psalm, and he's talking about that wilderness experience, but that too shall pass. Therefore, you, for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, through our wilderness experience, that too shall pass. And we just need to continue to trust in the Lord uh, that he is a God who sees and I'm reminded of Genesis, even, even with um, Abraham and Sarah and, uh, and Sarah's servant. Um, her name slips my mind. Hagar, thank you. So Hagar, right? Um, Sarah tells her, you know, I'm seeing the child, uh, um, Ishmael, and he's laughing, which is interesting because it's the same name for Isaac, and so you don't know, well, is he laughing, you know, being devious and really mean toward Isaac, or he's, is he kind of reflecting what that little boy's name is? Well, anyways, she takes it and tells Abraham she goes, and she does leave. Abraham the next day says, sorry, but you got to go, um, and then she sets the boy down in one area and moves very far, says, abodes, 
a bow shot, an arrow shot, just so she wouldn't see this, the boy die. And it says that God heard the boy. And she, at that moment, she says, the God who sees. And she recognizes that. So here is the same. God rules, and he sees our lives. He sees your life. I'm so thankful for that. He's not like, uh, like me, that things slip through my finger and I forget, I forgot that. And I need a, some kind of calendar to remind me of this and that. God knows all the details, and he's very present. So Psalm book three there, or book four, sorry, the reminder that God is Israel's savior. And so it is this time, and I think there's a neat little verse here too, as I put there um, in Psalm 90 verse 4, because even though it's the Psalm of Moses and it's talking about the wilderness experience and that that finished at one time, and so their time of exile one day will also finish, it, it, what it does is directs the view from the things, from a, it makes them see it from a divine perspective. Where a human millennium is but a day for the Lord. And that's a great verse where it says for a thousand years. And maybe I'm in the wrong one. Well, that is. Um, for a thousand years, Psalms 94. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. Or as a watch in the night. And so... As sometimes we read this and we read this so quickly, we wonder like, okay, this means that, you know, a day, you know, a thousand years for us is like a day for God. But the reality is like, no, no, no. Let's see it from heaven's perspective. God is there and he's present and he will help. And those examples that Moses has placed are examples for us even today as well. So Psalms 91 and 92 are Psalms of trust and thanksgiving. Psalms 93 to 100 speak of Yahweh's majestic, <clears throat> excuse me, majestic kingship. Despite the present state of the Davidic monarchy, Yahweh, God, reigns. Because God is still reigning and his reign is universal. So because of that, consequently, the nations can be invited to worship God, for they are his people. And here... We see in Psalm 10, it says, make what we see on the screen, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. So here, it's pointing to the aspect that we're moving away from the ethnic Israel or the Jewish group to all the world. And because he reigns universally, we can invite others to come join us to worship the Lord. This is Psalms. This is what Psalms 100 says. So make a joyful noise to all the all. To the Lord, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. All these invitations are for all the nations. Serve God. Come into his presence. Verse 3, know that he is God. He is the Lord. It is he who made us, and we are his. That is incredible. Because that's for Assyria, that's for Persia, that's for, in that time, for Egypt. Israel's God is their God. He made them, and he's welcoming them. Come, worship me. Come, know me. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. All this goes back to verse 1, all the earth. So, Bringing it, making it more re relevant for today, that's why we're seeking the 800,000, right? It's not just for us. We're all Gentiles anyway, um, but this is a reality. As we move hundreds of years into the future to our time, we see this reality that all the earth can worship God because he's a God not of this little piece of land that is very important, but he's the God of all the earth. So... We can invite others to come and worship him as well. And so we come to the last book, book five, Psalms 107 to Psalms 150. 
It's about praises after regathering of the exiles. Uh, so this is them coming back. So majority of the book looks to the great future God has in store for his people. Found in many of these books are the anticipation of a coming king. Consequently, you, you will see like uh, a lot of these psalms, the applications are applications to Christ the king. You find, for example, in Psalm 108, you find Judah regarded as God's scepter. You see in Psalm 110, a, a new ruler that reclaims dominion of humanity. In Psalms 110.6, the royal and priestly motifs are found there as well. Uh, Psalms 111 to 118 is God's kingship. You have the famous one, Psalms 119 that it's about Torah, God's word, God's law. Uh, and you have from Psalm 20 to 134, you have these pilgrimage passages or these pilgrimage psalms, the song, 15 songs of ascent um, that are allowing for the Israelite to understand as they prepare their life, their heart to go worship God before the temple. Um, and what does the temple mean? So the temple back in, in the days of Israel, why it was so important because it invoked God's presence. When you thought temple, you thought God. God is there. And so you have popular psalms uh, that are preparing this pilgrimage. Uh, some of the psalms you find during this time is as they're going down the road to go worship God. And the psalm says, God will protect you from the sun, from the sun in the day and from the moon at night. Uh, and so there's wonderful psalms like that. There are psalms that are, as they approach the temple, you know, from their psalms about unity. And they're interesting psalms because it talks about the dew of Hermon and the oil that runs down from Aaron's beard. Uh, these are psalms that we know very, very much, but it talks about uh, this unity, this harmony when the people of God come together. But those psalms talk about some aspects that are important. For example, that one that we're talking about in regards to unity, we don't set it. God's the one that sets it. So the idea of Mount Hermon covered with dew, well, we can't call dew down from heaven to this mountain. And the idea of the priesthood, Aaron is the great example. Well, God established that and then gave the tools of what we needed to do, well, Moses needed to do uh, for that time. So there's this idea that as we approach God with a right heart, God begins automatically to unite us as a people. And think about it. That's why we're here, right? Um, there's young and old here. Not only that, but from different cultures. I'm one, and I'm here worshiping you, worshiping with you and knowing God. And together, we're the family of God, and this is what God does. So these are great psalms that just don't bring us back to the B.C. time and leave us there, but we're able to look at it and take those riches and apply it to our lives and see what the Lord does in our lives as well and gives us encouragement uh, so many things. Um, so as an example, Psalms 140 and 150 that I talked earlier about being bookends. So you have Psalms 149, uh, 149, excuse me, I think I said 140, but 149 and 150. Uh, Psalms 149 speaks about the relationship between Yahweh and the nations. So, so it speaks similarly to what we see in Psalms 2. Uh, and perhaps it is also part of the book's conclusion with Psalm 150. And the reason for that is that the writer then traverses the path from obedience and righteous living to the uninhibited praises of Yahweh. There in Psalm 150, the response to the joy found in the lifestyle of the righteous, a product of choosing what we see in Psalm 1, the way of the righteous. And so we see these two bookends, and it is so neat because in my world, as I studied Old Testament, uh, a lot of the secular scholars are always trying to figure out 
there's no way that one man can write this. This is so complicated. How in the world did he have in mind to put chapter 1 and chapter 2 to be in bookend to chapter 149 and 150? And so because of that, they would say, and they didn't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, they would say, well, it has to be communities for thousands and thousands of years that wrote and rewrote and rewrote, and this is what we have today. But this is how great our God is. And so he used Moses, he used David, he used some of these men. And as we read, we're like, wow. And the longer we spent, so one of the things that I'll never forget from one of my professors um, that still serves me today is they asked him the question, so what do you think the differences are from, you know, Old Testament and New Testament? He said, well, Old Testament kind of outlines it for you right away. You kind of know what you got to do. Sorry, New Testament. Old Testament, you need to take it in, savor it, you keep it in your mouth for a while, you taste it really well, and then you begin to understand what's there, the flavors that come out before you swallow it. And I think the longer we spend time in God's word, uh, the more we begin to realize what's here. And hopefully the more excitement we get to know who God is. Ultimately, this is not about facts. This is not like, well, I could tell you what, what all these many verses this is for what? So that we may know who God is and that we may worship him how he desires us to worship him, right? And draw close to him. And he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. So this is great here. Um, and so we see this in Psalm 149 and Psalm 150. Uh, we, go into, we go into real quickly, and I'm going to have to fly through some of this, but some of the types of psalms. So we have different types of psalms. Uh, two key guys who kind of figured this out early on was uh, two Germans, one Hermann Gunkel, uh, and another guy was uh, Sigmund Mowinkel. So Sigmund or uh, Mowinkel will be, was Gunkel's uh, student, and Gunkel was one that began to understand that, hey, there are many, many, uh, there are major types of psalms. There's um, individual laments, there's national laments, and we'll talk descriptions of each of these thanksgiving psalms, descriptive praise psalms. And so these four categories are very her uh, helpful to understand the psalms. There are minor types as well that we won't be able to get in today, but Herman Gunkel was one to begin to discover this. Mo Winkle was his student, and what he did was he took it a little further and said, well, how is that applied he, the practical side in, in the time of worship. So these guys were instrumental. Uh, they're neat guys. Um, there are a lot of things I disagree as well, um, just because they're a product of their time. Um, but anyways, we'll t look at some of these. So we have, for example, individual, the individual uh, lament there in Psalm 43 is a good example of an individual lament. So these psalms correspond roughly to prayers for help out of distress. Uh, they have the following parts, and then you can jot these down. There's an introductory cry to God. The psalmist turned to God immediately and poured out his heart in a short address. Frequently, it's a summary of the direction of the psalms. So there's this introductory cry of God, and then there's the lament. So the lament is a full expression uh, it's a full expression describing the difficulty. It's describing the enemies, what the enemies have done to him, uh, what straits he was in, and what God has or had or had not done, had not done uh, for them. So you find this lament, individual lament, this, these categories. There's also the category there in regards to the confession of trust. So as I move on, move forward in this, for example, in Psalm 43, you will see, for example, the introductory cry to God in verse 1. Then you have a lament in verse 2. Then there's this confession of trust in verse 3. And that confession of trust is turning from his complaint to full confidence in the Lord. And let me pause there. Let me read that again. That part, for example, in verse 3, which is a simple, it's a, a, good little, a, a good little psalm that we don't get lost in. It's not 100, you know, 89 
verses and you're trying to figure out, well, when does one begin and the other one stop and, and the other one start? So what is interesting here, and I want to read that again, is that confession of trust, there's a place there, what we find in verse 3 there, that is a turning away from his complaint, and, the, and there's a declaration of the full confidence in the Lord. And why I want to pause there really quickly is that sometimes we never do that. We stay in our complaint. And that's all we talk to the Lord about. But what these Psalms teach us is it's okay. But let there be a place where you can have full confidence in the Lord. That he's there. Uh, that you can trust. So these sections expand into complete Psalms of trust and confidence. Then in verse uh, 4, you have this petition, and the psalmist requested that God intervenes on his half to rescue him. And then you have in verse 5, a vow of praise or expression of praise. And it's this full expression of his praise to God for answering his prayer. They're being sure that the Lord would answer. And he began praising in the praying. Uh, an Old Testament scholar, scholar called uh, Claus, Claus Westerman suggests that in the mindset of the psalmist praying, God heard and inclined himself to the psalmist. The sudden assurance of this response led to the psalmist into a full expression of praise. You know, this is the idea that we close thanking God. You are listening. You are listening. And we don't leave ourselves in the complaint in the pit and saying, well, God, I feel like I'm talking to the wall and that's as far as it's going. But have the faith to say, Lord, you are listening and I'm here uh, to give a vow of praise or of expression of how much I love you and how much I worship you. So it is, it is pretty neat. And so we have this individual, we have this individual lament, but then we also have a national lament. And the national lament really reflects a lot of what we find in the individual lament. So it's usually, usually shorter. It includes an introductory address and petition, uh, a lament, a confession of trust, a petition, and a vow, of, a vow of praise in each of these psalms. And so um, you find it there, for example, in Psalm 44, the introductory cry to God, verses 1 through 9, a lament, verses 10 through 16, there's this confession of trust, verse 17 through 18, and this petition, verses 19 to 25, and this vow of expression of praise, which is verse 26, which is interesting. It's just one verse. What does that mean at times, right? God just wants you to be honest. We sometimes want to say, Lord, can, I don't have much to say. And God is saying, just tell me what, what's in your heart, you know. You don't have to spend three hours. You don't have to write, you know, 20 pages of what you're, just tell me what's in your heart. And at times it's just like, God, I love you, and I know you're going to come through, and just help me wait. And so there's this vow of praise or expression of praise there uh, in, verse 20, in verse 26. We come to Thanksgiving Psalm, and our time's coming to a close. But we have this Thanksgiving Psalm, and I'm going to go through it real quickly. Uh, these psalms are also called declarative psalms or declarative praises, and they take, uh, they take five elements in this form. Uh, the first element they do, they talk about, is the proclamation to praise. So the psalmist normally began with an expression such as, I will praise, uh, because the psalm was a means by which he told others what God had done for him. By the way, as we, as you read some of this, this is very close to uh, temple worship. I mean, this is, this is what you find in Leviticus. Sometimes you have um, some of the different sacrifices, but some of the sacrifices you invite others to celebrate. And so here we see it in words, um, this proclamation to praise God and what God has done. And this, they're inviting others, they're telling others, what God has done for them. There's an introductory summary uh, during this time or within this summary. There's a brief statement of what God has done to uh, God done for them, and so 
Uh, it's frequently offered here, and then there's a report of the deliverance, and it's pretty detailed at times, normally expanded, that he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard, and then the Lord delivered him. There's a renewed vow of praise that here he actually gave God the praise that he promised to give. And then we have a praise of instruction. The psalm ends with this direct praise of God, or it incorporated an extended section of instruction for others. So it's pretty neat. I mean, a lot of this reflects what we, as you study with Bill, going through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, um, a lot of this is reflected in that, in that worship time. But then there's a lot of it that reflects our life and faith today uh, because it becomes incredibly important when we talk about, for example, here that he told others what God has done. I mean, that is witnessing, right? We witness because of what Jesus has done in our, our lives. And I guarantee all of you have incredible testimonies from being dead to being alive, from being reborn again. And what God has done in your life and in your marriage and your spouse and your children. Or what you're waiting for. God, I'm expectant and I'm not giving up because I know you are listening. This is Psalms. This is the Psalms. So we see an example there in Psalms 21 uh, when you take the time there to read that. And so we see also a declarative praise psalm. And these do not tell primarily of the, the deliverance, rather they offer direct praise to God. These psalms follow a slightly different arrangement. They call to praise is the first one. In other words, they invite others, uh, invite others to praise the Lord. A cause to praise, they give reasons why to praise God um, in this section. And normally it's included a summary or a full development of the reasons for the praise. There's a conclusion. Uh, the psalmist closed the song with a new exhortation to praise the Lord. And there's examples of these uh, in Psalms 33, Psalms 36, Psalms 105, Psalms 111, 113, 117, 135. These are descriptive praise psalms. Uh, these are all, uh, they not only talk about praising, but they also mention, uh, for example, you'll find hymns come out from here, general hymns. They talk of creation, praising God in regards to the creation of enthronement, of his entrance to worship the Lord, to his entrance in the temple, his trust. There's so much here, the, the pilgrimage um, that happens. Uh, so Psalm 33 is a great example. And then there is the Messianic Psalms as well. And the, this is another type of psalm or some of them call it uh, royal psalms, uh, but we have here um, five types of messianic psalms. There's the purely prophetic psalm, like, for example, Psalms 110, that refers to a future Davidic king. There is eschatological psalms, or end-time psalms, so Psalms 96 to 99 are some of these, and so-called enthronement psalms as well, coming the, it describes the coming of the Lord, the consummation of his kingdom, um, the eschaton, if we can put it in those words, these last things. Uh, there's the type, uh, typological prophetic psalms. Psalms 22 is an example of this. Uh, in these psalms, the writer describes his own experience with the language that goes beyond the experience and becomes historically, historically true in Jesus Christ. So Psalms 2 is one of those, Psalms 22. There's also an indirectly messianic psalms, and it's written for a contemporary king or for, a, or for royal activities in general, but ultimately we find its fulfillment in Jesus. For example, in Psalms 2 that we read, Psalms 45, Psalms 72 are some of the examples of these. And so there's so much of all these as well and these messianic psalms um, that we've been talking about. So as we uh, look at some of this, what are some of the observations? Well, the psalmist went to God first. Uh, he expressed a full range of emotions to him. 
very important, right? It allows us to be human. Um, there are times of joy and times of sorrow, times where we're confused, times where we're afraid, times where we're fearful, times where we're brave and courageous. So there's this huge range of emotions that we find. We also know God's character as well as his actions. An example, Psalms 103. Uh, the psalmist also, some of the observation is uh, trusted, he trusted God to set everything right. One day, if not tomorrow, is so important. The praise with an expression of their faith. Um, and this is, this is for us as we look forward to his coming, to the establishing of his kingdom here on earth, our time with him. And so it should encourage us uh, to wait in anticipation, to be like John in the book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus and be faithful to the Lord. How believers can use Psalms, and we'll come here to the end, uh, to help us co communicate the praise that is abounding in our hearts, to reshape our emotions, reminding us of God's goodness, power, and loyal love, thus encouraging us to walk in faith with him. It's an act of worship. It's an act of worship. Uh, Psalms offers instruction of the journey of faith and recounts the dialogue with God that he is at the heart of our journey. It is so important. It's neat. And so that's why I think Psalm is, is just very rich, very deep um, in all these uh, aspects of, as well. Uh, one aspect of worship is a key feature of the book of Psalms is the idea of worship. It's the act in which the community celebrates and thereby makes available God's presence and activity. Thus, the Psalms portrayal of worship begins with divine presence and activity rather than with human initiative. The perspective on worship is characterized of biblical theology. Worship is incorporated an incorporated response to divine presence and activity. It's also an arena for divine action. The purpose of worship, the encounter between God and community, is to bring renewal for full, obedient living. It's to draw us closer to God. The Psalms portrayal of worship includes a variety of elements. There's praise, there's confession, there's proclamation, there's commitment. As such, worship in Psalms is not passive, but active. And so it is neat for all of us. And here, Psalm 8 is a great psalm. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider the heavens, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. And so we see this aspect, the Lord, here's one that we know really well, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And just that one verse says so much. To pause and meditate on that. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior, my God. Psalms 43, 5. And so it is interesting, and I think one of the neat aspects of here of this is not only does it allow us to know who God is, not only does it draw us close to him, but it begins to change us, right? We said earlier sometimes we get to the complaint and we don't move on. Well, these psalms begin to say, well, you know what? I need to bring my captive's obedience to the obedience of Christ. Or if we put it another way, bring my thoughts captive so that I can obey Christ. And this begins to reshape our thoughts. Who am I before God's eyes if he's made me? Who am I if he saved me? And the world teaches me one thing, what we see in Psalm 1. But what does God say? We won't know what God says unless we get in his word. So... With that, I want to close and just remind you all to read for next week, uh, 2 Samuel 1, chapters 1 through 4. Uh, and I want to thank you for the opportunity. 
And let's go ahead and close up in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, for what your word teaches us. And uh, so much the full range of expressions that we find here in the psalmist, Lord. But it, they're about us too, Lord, that we could come fully to you and be known by you, Lord, and that you uh, reveal yourself to us through your word and allow us to love you and as you love us, Lord. It's just neat, Father, because not only do you change us, but you change those around us. It all starts with you and ends with you. We give you honor and glory. We thank you for this opportunity, Lord. We thank you that we can spend an hour and just want to say thank you. We give you all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you all. Like you could fall 